This is The Art of Charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. The Art of Charm is where ordinary guys become extraordinary men. Hey y'all, welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best minds in the industry to teach you how to crush it in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise and packing decades of research, testing tough lessons into a concise curriculum. We've created one of the premier lifestyle programs available anywhere, and it's free. Price is right. This is the show we wish we had a decade ago. And the show's about you. We're here to help you become the best you can be in every single area of your life. Make sure to stay up to date with us and get some great content that we don't share or can't share on the show. That's at the newsletter at theartofcharm.com. And if you're new to the show but you want to know more about what we teach here at the Art of Charm live programs in L.A., check out the Art of Charm toolbox. That's where we've got our fundamentals like eye contact, the way you sit, stand, walk, talk, body language, reading it, dating attraction, business networking, negotiation, all that stuff that we wish we'd learned and mastered years ago. And, of course, we have our live programs running every single week here in Los Angeles, California, Details at theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp, or give us a call, or email me, jordan at theartofcharm.com. I read everything, and I'm looking forward to meeting you here at AOC. On with the show. Today we're talking with Gretchen Rubin. She is nothing short of amazing. She's the author of several books, including blockbuster New York Times bestsellers like The Happiness Project and Happier at Home. She has an enormous fan base, of which now we are helping her grow here. We're lucky to have her with us. I think she is, this is an absolutely wicked interview, instant classic. We're going to talk about order, minimalism, unlocking your creativity, myths about habits, why when people have habits that work for them, they're happier, healthier, more productive, the crucial secret to making habit change possible, even for those who failed before, why some people do better in the face of strong temptation, others by being moderate, loopholes that you use to convince yourself that you don't need or do need to do something, and some key habit strategies that help people succeed. So enjoy this one with Gretchen Rubin. Tell us about the books that you've written and uh, and what they're about. They're, you know, sneak peek, everybody. They're similar themes, right? Uh, yeah, they're both about happiness. One was The Happiness Project, which was about the year I spent test driving, uh, The Wisdom of the Ages, Contemporary Science, and the lessons from popular culture about how to be happier. I wanted to see, like, what does everybody say you should do? And if you do it, does it actually work? Yeah. You know, I was looking for like, what are the universals? There's not that many universals, um, but it seemed like almost everybody has this idea of home and wanting to have like being happy at home. And I thought, and you know, you can't, it's hard to be happy if you're not happy at home. So I wanted to really take the subject of happiness and go really deep into this one kind of universal area. Um, and figure out if there were things I could specifically do around the idea of home. Ah, interesting. And it's so common, it's almost so common knowledge that it's cliche, right? If you're, you, you always hear like, oh, he, you know, the reason that this person's whole life is effed up is because his home life is not good. And you hear that about kids all the time, but then you, you see grown ass men misbehaving all the time. And it's like, what's up with that guy? Oh, you know, well, it, things are not that good at home, you know, and blah, 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 blah. Or, or like a wife is like, has a drinking problem suddenly. And it's like, what's going on at home? It's always right. the first place people look. So you're right. It's kind of the root of whether you're happy or unhappy. A, a lot of it may or may not, according to your research, I guess, start at home. Well, and a lot of it, you know, part of the issue is that we want a lot of things from our homes, kind of contradictory things. So we want our home to be a place of like, 
privacy, but also a place of engagement. Like you want to be able to be by yourself, but you want to have your friends over. And you want it to be quiet and calm, but you also want it to be full of excitement and liveliness. You want it to be this haven that gives you a feeling of security, but and you want to use that as a launching pad to like set you out into the world with a sense of enthusiasm and confidence. And so we have a lot of expectations from home, but it's easy, like in all the examples that you say, you know, if something's going wrong, sometimes it's like, well, instead of doing what I need to do to fix this, I'm just going to like spend more time at work because work feels more manageable. I'm just not really going to deal with this. And what I found is, you know, some people have really big, hairy problems, but for a lot of us, there's low hanging fruit. There's little things that we can do that don't take a lot of time, energy or money that just make the whole experience of being at home more pleasant, like to feel like you're more yourself there and to feel like it really is that haven and that place that you want to come to. What are some examples of that? I kind of dance around this myself, right? Like I live in this cool city and I've got this loft, but also it kind of looks like a warehouse, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, yeah. it's got all my fun stuff, which is also a lot of my work stuff and it's electronics everywhere, but also I want to lay on a fluffy couch. Like it's, yeah. it is weird. I have the same problem. Like, should this yeah. be real chill or should this be like badass, you know? Right, right. One of the things that's really surprised me as I've studied happiness is the kind of crazy degree to which for most people, not everybody, but for most people, outer order contributes to inner calm. Like when you can find the stuff that you're looking for, when you're not surrounded by things that don't work or that you never really use, like if you have some clear surfaces, it makes you feel calmer, but also kind of more energetic and more creative. Like this friend of mine said, I finally cleaned out my fridge and now I know I can switch careers. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. Yeah, So, but the problem is, is that clutter is constantly coming in. And so what do you do? Like you've got your wires and your chargers and, you know, whatever. So here's something that a lot of people find is super effective and, and easy, manageable. And that is the one minute rule. So anything that you can do in less than a minute, you do without delay. So if you can hang up your coat instead of dumping it on the chair, if you can rip open a letter, scan it and toss it because, you know, you don't need it. If you can look up a, a fact and send it back to somebody's email, you know, send back the email and delete it. If you can file something you can put the jar of peanut butter back in the cabinet. Like, and what happens is these little tasks, they're not demanding. They're, they're things that you can do in less than a minute. And what they do is they kind of clear out that just scum that's on the surface of life. Those little things that are not a big deal on their own, but they accumulate super fast and they just make you feel weighed down and drained. You know, you walk into your office, you walk into your bedroom and you just see like a million things in the wrong place. Oh, I should do this. Oh, I'm supposed to do that. Oh, that's, I got to put that away. Oh, that goes there. That goes there. And you just feel like you just want to give up and flop down. Oh, yeah. And this doesn't require like, I'm going to spend the weekend cleaning up my garage. Right. or I'm going to take a personal day and deal with my closet. Um, and you just can do it in kind of the interstices of your regular day without making a big effort. And so many people have said to me that it's like crazy how over not like a week or two, not long, just all of a sudden feel like they have so much more control over the stuff of their life. And the thing that's weird is when we have control over the stuff of our life, we feel more in control of our life generally. And if that's an illusion, it's a helpful illusion. Yeah, no, I'm down with that. I, I, can I tell you, it's so funny you should just mention this, because right now I'm staring at massive amounts of Ikea stuff that Jenny, my girlfriend, is built slash is building to hold a bunch of stuff that is right now like, oh, this is on the floor and this other stuff for the cats by the fridge in the cat area. Like the deadly floor piles. Oh, yeah. And and I, I just spent like a few hundred bucks on audio drawers for like, I mean, audio stuff. I have a, a professional studio at home, so I have 
a million cables, 80% of which are seeing the light of day when somebody brings over something weird that needs to get plugged into something else that I seldom use. So all that stuff goes into these drawers that then roll away that can be put behind acoustic pads. And like then we get to throw out this big, ugly cabinet that's just kind of like you bang your freaking neon every time you walk by it. (laughs) And then, like, all the wires on my desk and the computer and stuff, they slide into these drawers that have, like, cable holes. So, like, everything just kind of gets tucked away. And I got that because when I was young, my room was a freaking mess just like every other kid. And my mom was like, okay, you can have a junk drawer for any crap that you want, but everything else is getting cleaned up just because of, I don't know, her neuroses or just, like, her being a good mom and, like, making sure I didn't live in a pile of my own human, you know, filth. It's awesome because when you look at an area that's like, and I'm not trying to be all like Zen parallels and perpendiculars here, but when I see that stuff, I don't know. It is so freaking satisfying at some sort of like, like ancient Greek Parthenon type level where everything is just how it's supposed to be. The natural order is enforced. No, it really, it matters more than it should because we can all say like having a bunch of wires out in the context of a happy life, a productive life, that's not such a big deal. And yet there is this kind of, disproportionate surge of energy and creativity. And the funny thing is, it's like you say, it seems to be on this kind of primal level, like the yeah. symbolic level. And I really think like for a lot of people, if you're, if you're stalled out on some project and stuff, there is something about getting everything in order, not using it as a procrastination technique, like, oh, I'm going to write this as soon as I clean up my desk, but right. really getting it in order as sort of a preparation really does seem to kind of unlock people's creativity. And here's another thing, speaking of like symbols, weirdly of everything that I've ever suggested that people do to boost their happiness, any habit that they should form, the number one thing that people say to me, and I would not say it's the most significant thing people could do, but it does come up the most is the, is the habit of making your bet. Yeah. And it's weird to me how often people say, and like a Navy SEAL, like head of the Navy SEALs gave the speech saying, Oh, it's so important to make your bed. And I think it's because like you say, there's something symbolic, like your bed is like your desk. It's not like, your dining room table. You know what I mean? There's something symbolic about your bed. There's something that's like you and your bed are somehow tied together more than just like a kitchen chair. And when your bed is in order, you feel more like you're in order. And then you come in at night and it's nicely made. It only takes a second. So you start your day by feeling like, well, if I've done nothing else today, I did make my bed. I made my bed. Yeah. It's funny. You should mention that. I had Don Dapani on the show. He's a former monk, I guess you'd say. And he knows at his monastery, he's an interesting guy because they, the monastery made money by creating websites back in like the 90s and Apple <laughs> did a documentary about them because they had all of like the Apple local area network, which everyone's like, networking? What's that? Tying two computers together? Why would you ever back need more day, than one? Yeah. And so they, they did that and, and his one bit of advice whenever people, all these like wealthy EO and YPO, if you're familiar with those organizations, those executives who run multi-million dollar companies are like, I need to be more mindful. And he's like, great. All right. Your homework before I come in and run the seminar, start making your bed every day. And then he'll get there. And the first thing he's like, all right, I sent everybody an email before this, before I got here. How many of you have actually made your bed every day? And like two people raise their hand and he's like, okay, the rest of you are already starting behind. And Mm -hmm. I actually made my bed and I told him and he's like, I'm really proud of you, especially if you're not lying. And I wasn't lying. And I'll tell Mm -hmm. you, there, I don't know what it is, and I'm not a woo-woo guy at all, but I totally felt awesome having yep. stuck with that simple habit yep. that had no real tangible benefit yep. for so long, and I still do it, and I'm like, this is great. It feels good. I tuck the thing in. I go take a shower, and I, I already feel like I knocked something off the list. Well, so and what you're pointing out is kind of an additional thing that's a benefit of a habit like that. 
Um, cause in my book about habits, I was looking at like, well, what are the good things? What are the bad things about habits? What, how do we form them? How do we keep them? And one of the things that you're pointing to is what is called self-efficacy. It's like, do you feel like you can do the things that you set out to do? Do you feel like a person who is effective in the world? Like there's all the benefits of actually making the bed, like the bed looks nice and all that. But then there's even the benefit of just saying like, I'm going to make my bed. I told myself that I will. And now I will. And because what that tells you is I can count on myself. When I say that I'm going to do something, I know that I can count on me. And it turns out this is really important. And when I would talk to people about why they were feeling so bad about a fact that they couldn't master a particular habit, part of it is this feeling that I can't count on myself. I keep saying this is important to me. And then I keep letting myself down. Well, if you can't count on yourself, I mean, it's hard enough to count on other people. If you can't count on yourself, well, then that's not a good feeling. And so that feeling of self-efficacy of like, here I am doing it again. I said I would, and here I am doing it. It's very reassuring because then you're like, well, if I can make my bed, maybe there's other things that I can do that are even more important. There's definitely something to that just from my own personal experience. Well, so this is my view is that, and tell me what you think. I think that there are simplicity lovers and there are abundance lovers. And simplicity lovers, I'm a simplicity lover. They love, you know, bare surfaces, clean shelves. Apple you know, products. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They <laughs> like things to be very simple. But then there are abundance lovers. And they love profusion and abundance and choices and lots of things and a lot of, you know, colors. And the thing about simplicity lovers and abundance lovers is a lot of times they're very judgmental and they tell each other that they're doing it wrong. You know, like you should like this or this is the best way, you know, to simplicity lovers. We have all kinds of reasons why our way is the best way. But the fact is, it's just whatever suits you. It's whatever makes you feel more creative, more productive, what appeals to you. Now, of course, even an abundance lover doesn't want to spend a half an hour looking for something. I mean, so there's a level of order that, you know, they want to, but they just want to be in a different kind of environment. But it really matters. Um, and I was struck by this. I was speaking at a large tech company and they sort of gave me a tour around as people do. And um, I walked onto this floor and it was all these cubicles and desks, open space, the way everything is now. And it was like there was stuff everywhere. And I was looking around and they were like, oh, yeah, we had this contest. Decorate, you know, have your team decorate. And there was like one that looked like a war thing, which was a little bit weird. But then there was one that was like the beach theme and and it was really fun to walk around and look at it all. And it was really festive and interesting. But I was like, I couldn't work here. It was just way too much stuff going on. It, it would have just, for me, it would have been like noise constantly playing in my ears. Like, I like to have things simple. But it's like, there's no right way or wrong way. And I think sometimes people get, like, the minimalist people are sort of like, seem convinced that that's the best way. It's like Thoreau said, simplicity, simplicity, simplicity. Even though it would have been simpler to just say simplicity. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think people really thrive in different environments. So it's really a question. And this is the thing I found about habits is you really have to figure out what works for you. And just because it, it sounds sensible on paper, or this is what Albert Einstein did, or this is what people tell you you ought to do, you really have to say to yourself, well, you know, what works for me? Like, how do I like, you know, when do I do my best work? When do I feel like I'm most I'm happiest, healthiest, most productive, most creative. Like what, what's the environment that lets me succeed rather than assuming that there's an answer just because it works for somebody else. Excellent. Yeah, that's good. So it, you have to sort of go along with your own brain. Are you an Android guy or an Apple guy, basically? Yep. What are some common myths about sort of habit change to get to happiness? 
There's so many people out there that are like, you know, it takes 28 days to create a habit. And I used to puppet that crap, too. And then I was like, wait a minute, 28, not 30, not 26. That doesn't make sense. So I'm like, where did that come from? And, you know, I started to look into it. And then it was like, no, it takes 60. And then other people were like, you never really build a habit. I'm like, OK, well, somebody's lying. <laughs> somebody's full of crap. Yeah. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that study because um, indeed there was this sort of urban legend based on nothing. It turned out when they tried to find out what the basis was that it took 21 or 28 days to form a habit. Then the University of College London did this study and they came up with this. It was either 60 or 66. I can't remember now where it was like the average to form a habit. But the fact is, that's like actually meaningless that, you know, because that doesn't tell you anything about anything, because what it means is like some people form habits more easily and some people never form habits. In such situations, a habit can form in one day and in another situation, it never really forms. And so that was part of what got me interested in the subject of happiness habits, because I was like, well, like, how do you explain these differences among people? And how do you explain these differences among experiences of people? It seemed obvious to me that there wasn't a one size fits all solution. And like you'd read things like the 21 day thing. And you'd also read things like the secret is to start small. The secret is to do it first thing in the morning. The secret is to indulge in moderation, you know, have a cheat day. And, I, you know, and I was like, well, sometimes those work for some people. It's not that they never work. It's not that they're wrong. It's just like, well, they just so clearly do not explain the whole picture because because there's there there was just this myth. There was an assumption that we were all the same, that we all had the same aptitude and attitude towards habit. So one thing that was very striking to me that no one ever talks about is that they act as though everybody has the same desire to form habits. Well, that's just not true. I love habits and I'll say things to you like discipline brings freedom. You know, I give myself rules to make myself free. And then other people are like, how can you say that? Freedom means no rules. I would, I don't want to bind myself. I hate the idea of habits. That's a cage. Um, And so, and then of course that's going to affect how they approach their lives and any kind of habit-like behavior they want. So I think the biggest myth of all is the myth that there is a one size fits, fits all solution and that we can, if we could just find the right answer and follow it, we would all be fine. And the, because of what is true is that it really comes down to you. What are you a morning person or a night person? Are you a simplicity lover or an abundance lover? Do you like to start small or do you like a big project? And that's what challenges you. Do you like to keep things private or do you like to go public? If you know someone's watching you, does that make you more likely to stick to something or does that make you less likely to stick to something? I mean, there's just a million things to, t- to take into consideration. And, and I think that's really encouraging because what it means is that for any one person, there's a lot of things they can try, even if they failed, because a lot of times when people fail, that's a myth. A myth is like, well, I can never get myself to exercise. But when I talk to people like that and I ask them, well, what did you try? How'd you go about it? A lot of times it's, it's easy for me to see after talking to them for 10 minutes that they tried to do something that just wasn't a good fit for them. And so they were banging their head against the wall. But if they tried something that was more suited to their nature, their interests, their values, their priorities, then they probably would do a much better job. So there's like, there's hope. You know, I spent a lot of time trying to identify for people like, well, what are the things that you could look at in order to figure out what would allow you to succeed? You know, another myth is that it takes a really long time to form a habit. Well, as we all know from experience, you can change a habit overnight. I mean, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. Yeah, that's true, right? Of course, we see it all the time. It's just that building really good habits tends to be a little bit harder because you don't necessarily really want to do it. You just know it's good for you. 
I, I don't know that this is a myth, but it's something that people don't really think about that's actually important, which is that people assume that it's harder to form a habit. They assume that if you enjoy a behavior, it would be easy to form a habit of doing that. But think about your own life. A lot of times it's just as hard to get yourself to do something that you want to do as to do something that you feel like you ought to do. I want to have a weekly dinner with my family. I genuinely really want to do that. I look forward to that. I enjoy it at the time. I look back on it with pleasure. Everything about it, I like. Why can't I do it? The fact that you enjoy it doesn't necessarily make it easier. It probably, it's easier than if you actually hated it. But you can't assume that that will be enough. Because a lot of times those habits that are like, I love to read, but I feel like reading gets crowded out, like reading for pleasure. And so I had to make a habit of like really setting aside enough time each week to read. And I thought, well, this will be a joy because I all I want is more reasons to read. But it was really hard to protect that habit oh, because yeah. things kept kind of coming up against it. And in a way, given my personality type, in a way, it's easier to make myself do something that I don't want to do than something that I do want to do. Like I have to force myself to play. I really have to make myself wander. I, I have to schedule time to goof off because otherwise I just don't. Back to the show. I was skipping lunch hours and stuff for a long time just to work. And then I was like, okay, I need lunch. Like, this is bad. I'm not performing well in the afternoon, blah, blah, blah. So I scheduled lunch and I was like, this is great. You know what else I should do? I should have lunch and then read outside and then go back to work. That would be really awesome. So what ended up happening was I ended up not doing lunches again because I was like, well, this is my lunch read and I have so many important things I got to do. So I'm going to kill the reading time and work through that because I need to. And then it was like, crap, I just worked through my lunch and that happened forever. That I can so easily identify with that. Right. And so the thing about habits, though, is that you can use habits to force yourself to play and to goof off because the fact is we all need to recharge our batteries. So in my book, I have the 21 strategies people can use to change their habits depending on it. And 21 kind of sounds overwhelming, like, oh my gosh, I don't even want to think about that. But it's good because then you can just pick and choose. It's like, hey, there's three or four that you want to do and then you, there's a lot to choose from. But the most fun strategy is the strategy of treats. And a treat is not a reward. You don't earn it. You don't have to justify it. It's just something that you give to yourself because you want it, because you enjoy it. So one of the things that you could do is you could be like, well, this I'm using the strategy of treats. This is a treat for me, and therefore it's important because when I recharge my battery, when I take the time to do something for fun, really it's going to have this enormous consequence on my self-command, on my productivity. Because when people don't give themselves enough treats, enough healthy treats, they start giving themselves unhealthy treats. Either they deprive themselves of treats altogether, which is very unhealthy. They work through, they just blow themselves through. Or they start saying things like, I need this glass of wine. I, I've earned this brownie. I have to have this ice cream. Oh, so you treat yourself no matter what. Because I feel like I never do that. But then you, I do. <laughs> you should treat yourself. You should treat yourself. Because when you feel cared for, when you feel restored, then your, your self-command goes up or willpower, whatever you want to call it. This is the great accelerator of all good things in life is that, you know, that you can get yourself to do the things that you want yourself to do. And treats are important because they give you that little boost. You know, it's like plugging your charger in, like you get your battery back up to 100%. And doing something like taking some time to read, like you might find it hard to justify it because you're like, well, why should I be reading this for fun when I have so much stuff? 
And then maybe you have the same thought, which is what I think, which is like, I really want to relax, but the thing that will relax me most is to get all my work done. So that's what's going to be relaxing to me is to actually work. But the thing is, you're really better off taking a break. It really does make a difference if you give yourself those breaks and you give yourself those treats. And so that's the most fun strategy, I have to say. But it's, it's hard. Like you say, you feel like, oh, I don't give myself any treats. If you eliminate unhealthy treats, which for a lot of people take the form of technology, shopping and food and drink, you take those off the table because if you feel like they're kind of dangerous for a lot of people, they're not good treats. It can be hard to come up with it. Somebody's like, well, get, get a massage. I'm like, yeah, but who's got time? First of all, it's expensive. Second of all, like you've got to go to a place, get a massage, takes however long, get back. I mean, I don't have time for that. That's like a whole big chunk of my day. Because like for me, a massage is excruciatingly painful. Oh, okay. well, then don't. Then that's not your treat. Yeah, no, I, I consider it part of like my sports. Like it's like a workout because they're digging their elbows in there. And yeah, I could get a relaxing one. I have the like the one where they're like petting you like a dog. But um, so it's very relaxing. But no, somebody had a great treat, I thought, was um, buying new music. So every week he would buy himself a little bit of new music. And I was like, that's a great treat. You look forward to it. It's not that expensive. And it's something that is, you know, he's a huge music lover. So for him, it was a great treat. Or, you know, and it can be little things just like, you know, buying a magazine off a newsstand that just because you want it or that's buying, but it's a minimal thing of buying or um, fur therapies. You know, a a friend of mine, like, will take a half an hour and play with her dog. Um, you know, once you start looking for them, I mean, I, I sound like such, uh, like a sentimental fool. And I always made fun of people who like scented candles for years. I made fun of them. And now I am like one of these hardcore scented candle people. Karma's a bitch. Because they're so lovely. Yeah, I are. love scented candles. That's a treat. You know, that's an easy thing. Like you light a scented candle and everything seems nicer. Make a fire, you know, even something like getting out a new pencil or like a new Sharpie. Ooh, I love, you know, office supplies. I love. If you get a nice pen, like, and I don't mean like a gold pen. I mean like just like a pen that writes really well, doesn't screw up. It's got super fine lines. Oh, man. Yeah, fresh felt tip with lots of ink and still has the, the nice point that hasn't been dug down. So, so once you start, but you have to kind of look for them, you know, like what are the treats that work for you? And then how can you incorporate them? Because the thing about habits, what you realize is that it's really dangerous when we feel deprived. When we feel deprived, we start trying to bring ourselves back into balance. And that's when a lot of people spiral down in their habits. If you don't feel deprived, if you feel taken care of and you feel like you have the emotional wherewithal you need, then you can do more. So I always remind myself, if I give more to myself, I can ask more from myself. Oh, that's good. You know, and even like, and then it's funny because going to bed on time is a thing that many people struggle with. Like they know they would be happier and healthier and more productive if they got more sleep. But the end of the night is like their goof off time or like when they're hanging out with their sweetheart or when they're like, you know, watching reality TV, like my sister. Yeah, your sister in air quotes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but so it's hard to turn off the light because it feels like you're giving up your playtime. But for me, I really feel like going to bed as soon as I'm sleepy is a luxury. And I love waking up naturally in the morning. I hate being awakened by an alarm. But I think it's easier for me to go to sleep on time because I do think of it as a luxury. Ooh, this is a treat. I get to go to bed at 1030 right on my bedtime. Whereas I think for other people, the treat is to stay awake, you know? And so part of it is like, how do you frame what is a treat? If you can see how something is a treat, then it feels like a treat, you know? It's like, but if you don't, if you're just like doing it without thinking about it, you know, it's no big deal. It's like getting some kind of like 
fancy coffee feels like a big treat, then that's going to be delightful. But if you just get one every day without thinking about it, well, it's going to fade into the background. Yeah, you, you can totally make treats out of things that you like that you do every day. Have you ever done this? Oh, 100. Yes. But it takes a lot of mindfulness. It does. But but like I switched from coffee, which I love and like makes gives you that like rush, that little high and also makes you jittery and stuff. I switched to like just tea, healthier version, low caffeine stuff. Just because I like drinking stuff and staying hydrated through the day, coffee kind of does the opposite. Uh, but now it's like, hey, I'm going to go get some coffee because I have some time and that'll be nice. And I'll just go get like a nice, you know, $3 San Francisco pour over coffee. And now it's a treat. Whereas before it was like I'd get up and be like, I need yeah. coffee now. No, that's a very good point. Like it is funny because sometimes by limiting something, you make it more of a treat, whereas Oh, who was it? I think it was like Immanuel Kant or something. Like I, I read in his biography, like he only let himself have like one pipe a day. But over the years, the pipes got bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, <laughs> um, and that's the same thing. Like sometimes, like you can start out really enjoying something, but then it just becomes part of your daily life. You don't think about it, so you need to make sure that it keeps its treat status, or you think about how to have those treats. Either by just taking, not doing it for a while, or just moderating it heavily and actually holding to that for a while. Yeah. Even things that you have every day, just by sort of looking forward to them. Like I have the same breakfast every day, which is three scrambled eggs and butter, which is delicious. I love it. But every day I wake up and I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to eat breakfast because how much I love scrambled eggs. But you sort of do have to remind, make a habit of articulating that thought to you. So you just, you don't take everything for granted. Right. Otherwise you might as well just eat like raw kale. Right, right, right. Well, this is, and this is the thing about habits that people, like, I love habits. And the thing that's great about habits is that they're so, they're energizing because when you put, the brain wants to put things on automatic because when something's on automatic, then all this bandwidth is freed up for complex thinking and, you know, important decision making or like urgent things that are coming up. And so it's very freeing for the brain. And, um, and it also means you don't have to use your willpower because instead of like make, like people say, oh, you should make healthy choices. I'm like, don't make a healthy choice. Make one choice and then no more choices. Don't don't every single day be like, wow, I'm going to work today. Should I pack my lunch or should I order in? And then like decide every time you should just be like, okay, I'm going to take my lunch to work every day. That's my new habit. I'm going to do it. And then you just do it and you're done and you don't have to drain yourself. Um, You know, a lot of people saw that article about President Obama wearing the same clothes, like wearing the same kind of suits. So he didn't have to pick and choose the suits. Um, So it's the same kind of principle. However, habits are great. They they save us from having to make decisions. They're energizing. Um, they they save they save our willpower. They preserve our willpower. But it is true, and this is what you're pointing out. They're deadening and they speed time. So if you're having that that coffee every single day, it's very easy to for it to deaden to you. And in a way, this can be good. One thing that they've shown is that if there's something that makes people anxious. If they do it as a habit, it, they, they become less anxious about it. So it, it deadens their anxiety. But if they take pleasure in it, it also tends to deaden their pleasure. So you have to watch out for this deadening quality of habits. But, and habits also speed time. Because when something is on habit, it just happens. You don't even know. I mean, have you ever had that terrifying thing where you're like, you drive to work? Oh, yeah. And you're like, how did I get here? Yeah, you're like, what just happened? Like, was I even looking at a stop sign? Like, I have no idea what happened. And so you don't want to feel like your life is just slipping by on automatic pilot. And the more habits you have, the quicker time starts to go, which is why if you take a vacation or you start a job or like move to a new country, time 
really slows and deepens and, and becomes rich because the brain is processing so much information that it that time slows. So it's I love habits. Obviously, I wrote a book about habits and I want to have more and more habits. I see how great they are, but you do have to take into account that they deaden and they speed. And so you have to think about that as you're looking at your life and thinking like, well, how can I counterbalance the negatives so I can get all of the, the energy and acceleration that habits can give me that I don't pay this price. And man, that's great. I love the idea of giving yourself experiences and seeing how time slows. Yeah. I can remember so many things that happened during the year that I took and lived in Germany and high school. Oh, yeah. And it's like, I remember all these fine details. If you ask me anything about my life before age 20, other than that, I'll, I'll have a handful of yes. things. I'm exactly the same way. I mean, I had some friends where he was saying that they had been married for a while and then they had a baby kind of on the late side. And he said that one of the things they loved about it is that they felt like time had just been accelerating and that when the baby was born, it was just like it crawled to a stop because every day felt like an eternity and like so much <laughs> happened in a month. Right. And it's the same thing like moving to a new country or starting like the first month at a job seems so much longer than like the second year at a job. And I, th this really does concern me, I have to say. And I've been thinking a lot about in my own life how to introduce elements of a big change that would slow time because my life now has been pretty consistent for several years. And, you know, I have the same family situation, the same work. I mean, yeah, I'm working on this book instead of that book, but the, everything about the process is the same. Pop out a kid, Gretch. <laughs> yeah, like that. You know, my, my kids are like, let's get a dog. That'll do it. I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to get a dog. We did get a fish. Not the same. It was, uh, it was something. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, one step at a time, right? Yeah. I've, I've moved like 20 times. I've never counted, but it's got to be around 18 to 22 times-ish off the top of my head. And that helps a lot because you have this massive change of scenery, including your actual home. And you go, oh, that's when I lived in Manhattan. Okay, that's when I lived in L.A. And oh, this is when I lived in Michigan before that, but after I lived in Ukraine. And then this is from Israel. Like you have all those compartments that things go in. Because I talked to some of my friends who grew up in Michigan and have sort of stayed there. And they're like, yeah, that was like three years ago. And I'm like, no, that was like 12 years ago. And they're like, oh, yeah. That's right. See, because their time is speeding. Right. Because everything stays the same. It's and the same. so there's not this sense of uh, it's really something we're thinking about is how do you do that? I mean, starting a new job is amazing because, you know, so many new people, new information, new tasks, even like, where do I go to the bathroom? You know, all these things. Yeah. And moving is a, is a way to do it. So habits, they're a good servant and a bad master. You have these categories of loopholes in your book that people sort of invoke for breaking their good habits. Some of them were like, I, what, what was it? a few were like, I deserve this or I need this or I'm, you know, you're out of whack, right? That was the, yeah. Well, I'll let you explain it. I'm just ruining it right now. Well, the funny thing, so loopholes are when, like, we're always looking for loopholes. So a loophole is not when you're mindfully deciding that you're going to break a good habit. Like, well, you know what? Um, I really decided that I'm not going to eat carbs. We're going to this restaurant for my birthday, and I really, you know, next week, and I'm really excited. And, you know, they have the specialty of the house, and I'm going to have it, and I'm going to look forward to it, and I'm going to be, and, and I'm going to look back on it with pleasure, and it's really worth it. Because I really, really want it. That's like a mindful exception. And we're all grownups and we can all do what we want. So fine. But a lot of times we're not doing that. Like we're like we say, oh, you know, I'm not going to eat sweets anymore. But then you get to the office and somebody brought in donuts and you're like, oh, and then you come up with some loophole right there on the spot that is going to excuse you. 
And it's like, it's like a way of saying like, well, I'm off the hook here. Like there's no, I can't be expected to keep the habit because there's this loophole. Right. I don't want to be rude and not eat a donut or I don't want to leave the office and go get breakfast. So I'll just eat this. Oh my God. See, and people are so good at it. It's hilarious. I'm really good at it. I can keep going. <laughs> and, and people can generate like, there's 10 categories that I've identified and people can cycle through like six of the categories in like a minute because they are like, they just can throw so much at it. So, okay, so one of the ones you invoked is I don't want to hurt somebody's feelings, right? So that's like, that's a very common one, which I call the concern for others loophole. So it's like, well, somebody else's feelings will be hurt if I don't do this, or um, it would be rude not to do this, or um, if I do this, I might get irritable, and then, then others would suffer. Or here's one that's funny, and I loved it. Of all the chapters in the book, this was my favorite one to write because the loopholes are so ingenious and so hilarious. I was like, I had like a thousand examples of each one and then and I had to keep cutting it down because like, who wants to read a thousand examples? But one funny one that I was just reading was like somebody was saying how she and her husband had decided um, to give up drinking, partly for health and partly for money. Like they just decided they were going to give it up and, you know, whatever. And then she was in Trader Joe's and she saw this wine that they really loved that was expensive. So it was like it would have been a total violation of what they'd agreed would be their new habit, which was not to buy this kind of thing. And she was like, you should buy it for Eric. Oh. And it's like concern for others, right? Like I'm not doing this for myself, but really – to be the good person that I am, I better buy this wine. And I'm like, that's the concern for others loophole, right? Because it's not like, hey, honey, it wasn't like we mindfully decided that we're going to make an exception. It was a loophole that she was invoking in the moment to justify. So another one, a very common one is this doesn't count. So I'm on vacation. I hurt my foot. It's raining. Uh, you know, I'm just clearing the dishes and this is like my son didn't eat this. So I'm just going to eat the rest of it so it doesn't go to waste. It doesn't count because, oh, I'm going to go to the gym. So this will burn right off. So this doesn't count. Right. It balances out. All right. Back to the show. And they're all completely logically ridiculous. Like no one's sitting around going, we don't hang out with Gretchen anymore because she didn't eat my donuts on Thursday. No, no. But somebody said to me, like as an adult, I would never go to someone's birthday party and not have a piece of cake. And I was like, do you honestly believe that another adult's feelings will be hurt if you don't eat a piece of their birthday cake? I just can't. But here's a funny one. And this is one that comes up a lot. And and maybe it was the, I can't remember. You you had two loopholes. I can't remember what the second one was. But one of the funniest one is the fake self-actualization loophole, which is when you sort of characterize it as like, well, this is an embrace of life or, you know, like you only live once. YOLO. Yeah. YOLO is my favorite one. Like, you know, this is a huge waste of money, but YOLO. And it's like, no, that's stupid. And I've got to celebrate this special occasion. Life's too short not to live a little. I want to embrace myself just as I am. You know, and it's like, OK, like. You do want to embrace yourself just as you are, but what do you really want from yourself over the long run? And a good thing to do when you're facing a loophole is to think like, later, how am I going to feel about this? Later, am I going to be like, oh, that was awesome because we had that amazing cake for my birthday and I never forget that memorable night and it was excellent experience. Or are you like, why did I eat those stale donuts that I don't even like that my nasty coworker brought in? You know, or like the end of the day comes and you don't even remember. You're like, wait, did I have a donut today or not? You don't even remember. You know, you're eating like you're eating candy out of the bowl at the receptionist desk or something like that. You don't even notice. But here's one of the most tricky ones. And this is some of them are like obviously not true, like questionable assumptions, which is like the label says it's healthy. And you're like, 
do you really think it's healthy? Let's take a look at that, you know? These donuts have no fat in them. Right, exactly. Right, right. These are gluten-free. Yes, yeah, that's a good one, too. But one, but a loophole that's very dangerous because it's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. And so it's very, very seductive is what I call the one coin loophole. And the term one coin comes from this ancient teaching story, which is called the story of the growing heap, like a heap of coins. And so the, the story goes like this. If I said to you, does one coin make a person rich? You would say, no, one coin does not make a person rich. And then if I said, but what if you add another coin? And what if you add another coin? And what if you add another coin? At a certain point, you would have to say that one coin makes a person rich. And the, the one coin loophole is when you say, why should I go to the gym? What is one workout going to do for me? Uh. Why should I work on my PhD thesis one afternoon today? It's not due for a year. Why should I wear my helmet today? What are the chances I'm going to get in an accident today? And the fact is, that's true. Any one thing that you do is inconsequential. One piece of cake, one trip to the gym, one time wearing your seatbelt, one cigarette. But what is important is the habit. And the only way you get to the growing heap, the only way you get to become a person who regularly goes to the gym or finishes their PhD thesis in a year or whatever, is if you do these things one coin by one coin. But what happens is that people use this loophole and they switch. They toggle back and forth between the one coin and the growing heap. So, you know, when they're making their New Year's resolutions, they're like, yeah, I'm totally going to do it. I am going to go to the gym, you know, you know, three days a week for the whole year. But then on any particular day, they go to the one coin. But the problem is, it is true. Any one time in the context of your life, it doesn't matter. But you have to keep your eye on the growing heap because that's the only way you get there. It's an interesting loophole. I mean, because it's so convincing. It reminds me of those PSAs. Like, I'm only going to try meth once. And then the guy's like on a bench strung out for five years with holes in his face. Because you only get addicted to meth if you've done it once. They're all funny. They're all hilarious. But one of the, the, one of the funniest ones or the funniest examples is what I call the arranging to fail loophole. Because what happens is a lot of times like we're like, well, who could resist? But then but if you look back on what's happened, like we've gone way out of our way to create a circumstance to permit something to put ourselves in a place of like of irresistible temptation, you know, so like my favorite, I have two favorite examples. One is a friend of mine had a friend who had a gambling problem. And uh, so he saw this guy who lived in Los Angeles and he saw, ran into the guy and he said, like, how you doing? And the guy said, oh, I'm not doing that. Well, I just lost a lot, of, lost a lot of money gambling. And my friend said, well, I thought you weren't going to do that anymore. And my and his friend said, oh, well, you know, I wasn't in Las Vegas to gamble. And my friend was like, well, why were you in Las Vegas? He said, well, I bought a new car and I wanted to take it for a test drive. Right. So he drove from Los Angeles to Las Vegas, not to gamble. Oh, but then he's there. It's like, oh, well, what do you expect? I mean, yeah. How'd you get yourself to Las Vegas? And another example is I was reading this article from some newspaper, I think in the UK, and it was all about how impossible it is for people to lose weight, that it just like simply is impossible, is not possible for people to lose weight. As part of this thesis, they interviewed this woman who said, well, the thing is, like, I go on these diets, I lose this weight, and it all comes back. And they're like, yeah, well, how does that happen? She goes, well, let's just say, you know, like my husband and I love to go on all these all-you-can-eat cruises, and all the weight comes back. And you're just like, why are you going on an all-you-can-eat cruise? You're a person who has a big problem battling your weight. Like, the whole reason that you go on an all-you-can-eat cruise is so that you can just eat all you can and feel Like, it's fine because you feel like, oh, there's this loophole. I'm in an all-you-can-eat cruise, therefore I can't can't be expected not to eat what I want because here it is and it's free, essentially. But it's like, why are you having that kind of trip? 
I've never been on an all-you-can-eat cruise. It's not like you're forced to do it. That's probably why you go. She's arranging to fail. She's putting herself in a situation where then she'll feel like, well, there's this, I can't possibly be expected to keep a habit. Yeah, people do this with their friends too. Like, oh, you know, I'm gonna quit smoking or overeating or doing whatever dumb thing. And it's like, and then spending too much. And then they hang out with all their dumb friends who like waste all their money and shopaholics and smoke and, you know, do whatever over excessive whatever. And then they're like, yeah, it's just, you know, it's hard. And I don't want to, and subconsciously, it's I don't want to lose my friends by ostracizing myself because they don't want to have their crap habits highlighted by my abstention. So the only real way to do it is to extricate yourself. Well, and, and of, like, so I talk about the 21 strategies of habits and, uh, and like one is loophole spotting that we were just talking about, but you raised one of the most important influential strategies. And in a way, like there's like a couple chapters where I'm like, this chapter really deserves to be its own entire book because it's such a vast subject. I can only touch on it. And that is the strategy of other people because you are a hundred percent correct. We, a lot of times when we're thinking about our habits, we're like, Oh, what am I going to resolve for the new year? Whatever. We think of ourselves like isolated actors. But in fact, other people have tremendous influence on us. Now, partly it's like the people closest to us who were around all the time and we're really super exposed to their habits. Like in a marriage, if one partner gets type 2 diabetes, the other one is much more likely to get it. Or if one person stops smoking or drinking, the other person's much more likely to stop smoking or drinking. That's called health concordance. People tend to like come together. And we kind of know that, but it's a hugely influential effect. But here's the thing that really surprised me when I started paying attention which is a lot of times you'll pick up a habit from somebody like a most fleeting comment or like you'll just run into somebody you hardly know and they'll say something and it'll have some dramatic effect on your habit. So I'm one of these crazy low carb eaters, like crazy, like really I don't eat carb. I do eat nuts and cheese and stuff like that, but I would never eat something like pasta. You know, I don't, I don't really eat carbs. And what's funny to me is how often people have picked it up from me. People that I don't really know, like I saw a guy at a, like at a cocktail party who was sort of a friend of a friend. So we had one of those friend of friend conversations for like 20 minutes. Somehow it came up. I don't know how, but I always seem to get talking about habits one way or another um, whenever I talk to people. And I mentioned this as like a pretty dramatic habit that I had changed and how it came about, which is another story. And then I saw the guy like six months later and he's like, oh, yeah, you know, after that conversation, I gave up carbs, too. And I'm like, just like that. And he's like, yeah, just like that. Just like that. I mean, he's, I mean, and he wasn't like, oh, Gretchen's this expert or no, this is really, I mean, he just sort of did it on a whim almost. And I've talked to a lot of people who were like, oh yeah, I started, a friend of mine gave up drinking because a friend of hers was like, you know, I drank way too much over the holidays. This was like three years ago. She's like, I'm going to give up drinking for a while. I just thought, oh, gosh, it just, like, it's not doing good things for me. My friend was like, you know what? I'm going to do that too. And then her friend went back to drinking after like a month or so. And my friend has never gone back. So just sort of like because of this like lighthearted comment that she made, she, she ended up making this big habit thing. So other people ha- can have this big effect. And you want to be very conscious of that because they can make it easier for you to have good habits. Sometimes they're actually undermining. Sometimes you're, if they see you trying to have a good habit, it makes them feel worse. It makes them feel threatened. It makes them feel judged. And they might try to undermine it. Yeah. And so you, you want to just be very aware because the thing about habits and about everything in life basically is when you're not conscious of what's happening, you're not directing it. And when you are conscious of what's happening, it you're steering the ship. And the minute you are steering the ship, you're just much more likely to get where you're going. Because if you're just like adrift, you might get there, you might not. But if you're really steering, 
you know, when you know what's going on, when you're recognizing like what's pushing you this way and that way, you're much more likely to succeed. Excellent. And so we need to take some stock of that, right? Like ask yourself, what are the excuses I most often give myself? YOLO, I don't have time or, oh, I've been good. I need this. I deserve this, all that stuff. And then, I'm going to be so good tomorrow. Like it doesn't matter what I do today because starting tomorrow is so good. And then what else? Like accountability systems. We kind of touched on that too, right? Like, um, you know, hey, uh, I don't want to be in a place where I can screw up. I don't want to hang out with people who are going to be like, oh, you're going to you're not doing this. You're such a pussy or whatever people do to each other. Yeah. So I divide the world into four types of people that there's two types of people in the world, the type of people that divide people into two types of people and the types that don't. I'm definitely the type that I love to divide the world into types of people. Um, and I come up with this thing called the four tendencies, which is where I divide people according to their nature. But what I found is that for a very large portion of people, very large, external accountability is absolutely essential. When I understood this clearly for the first time was when a friend of mine said to me, I know I would be happier if I exercised regularly, but I can't get myself to do it. And the weird thing is when I was in high school, I was on the track team and I never missed track practice, but I can't go running now. Why? And this just obsessed me. I was like, why not? Because it's the same person, the same habit. Why could she do it faithfully, effortlessly in the past? But for some reason, there was something now that was preventing it. And if that rings true, and for many people, that kind of thing does ring true, what is the key is accountability. Now, for some people, accountability is helpful. But for this kind of person, which I call the obliger tendency, it's absolutely crucial. Because when my friend had a team and had a coach who depended on her, who were watching what she did, she was able to do it without any problem. And so if this kind of thing sounds true for you, you just have to figure out how to build in external accountability for anything you want to do. So if you're trying to write a novel in your free time, hire a writing coach who's going to ask you, you know, for certain chapters at, at a regular interval or form an accountability group with a group of people, not necessarily that they're reading and writing and criticizing. It's not necessarily a workshop. It's just like holding you to your word or sign up for a class where you have to turn something in. You know, there's all different ways of building an accountability. Get a dog where you have to walk your dog or the dog's going to pee all over the house. It's like he doesn't want to hear your excuses. They say people who have dogs exercise more than people who belong to gyms or like you want to read for fun. Like we were talking about, sometimes it's hard to get yourself to do something for fun. Join a book group where they're going to be really annoyed if you don't read the book and then you have to read the book. So accountability for many people is helpful. For some people, it is the crucial missing element. And this has been super exciting for me because as I've talked about, of all the ideas in the book, I think this is one of the ideas where people are like, oh my gosh, now I understand myself. Now I understand how to go forward. Now I understand my past, why I could do this, but I couldn't do that. Now I see it all. Now I know what I need to do. And they just get really excited. That's one of the big things. Excellent. And one final thing before we wrap, I think it's, you can ask yourself, you know, hey, are there times in the past when I've succeeded in keeping a habit that's really hard for me now. Like you kind of just mentioned, it's not like, oh, I can't run. You spent all of high school running. You know you can. So something else is obviously going on. Absolutely. And that is a really helpful thing. Now, I think sometimes what happens is that people see the difference, but they don't understand what the crucial element was. Like they don't understand that the crucial missing piece is, is external accountability, or they don't understand that the crucial missing piece is they're now trying to exercise in the morning, but when they were in college, they exercised at three they're a night person. And so at three, they feel full of energy. At 6 a.m., they feel lousy. And so that's the difference. Like, but you, because you're exactly right. Looking at your own past is full of information. 
if you've failed in the past, try something different. Like, okay, just to take a quick example, when facing strong temptation, people fall into two categories. Here I go again. Abstainers and moderators. Abstainers do better when they abstain altogether. They don't have trouble giving something up altogether, but they, they can't really indulge in moderation. They can have none or they can have all, but they can't have half. They can't have something sometimes. And moderators are just the opposite. They can have half a serving or a few bites or have it sometimes. A lot of times moderators, for some reason, um, this is a big moderator thing, is they'll have like a bar of fine chocolate in their desk drawer and every day they'll have one square of the chocolate. Well, I'm an abstainer. I'm gonna eat the whole candy bar, but I can have no candy. I can have no candy. The candy bar can sit right there in front of me. If I'm like, I don't eat candy, it doesn't bother me, but I can't have one. When you look at your past, like a lot of times people are like, well, I keep trying to be moderate. I keep trying to indulge in moderation and I can't and I can't and I can't. I say, try abstaining because people think that it sounds harder. It sounds more demanding. People are like, well, you're an abstainer because you have high self-discipline. No, abstaining is the lazy way. If you're an abstainer, this is easier, way easier. And so many abstainers have said to me, like people kept telling me to be moderate and I couldn't, I couldn't succeed. But then when somebody said, well, do just the opposite, abstain altogether from like my sister's kryptonite is French fries. So she just gave up French fries altogether. And she's like, well, that is so easy. But just having some French fries like killed her. And that's true for technology. You know, sometimes people are like, I can't play any video games. I play video games or I play video games all day. I have a friend who he said it took him an extra year to write his PhD thesis. Because of the video games? Yeah, and he was like, if, if, so, if somebody just said to me, like, you just can't play video games until you finish your PhD, he's like, I could totally have done that. But I kept saying, like, oh, I'll just play for half an hour, you know, and then not doing it. Six hours later, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. A friend of mine had to, ha, was like, I think I have to delete Candy Crush because it's like I'm not reading novels because I play Candy Crush all the time. Oh, it's my like, gosh, if you brutal. can't manage it, if you feel like, it's, and it's all what you want. Like, if you like it and it's fine, then do it. But if it's like you're like, this is really preventing me from doing the things I really want to do, living the life that I want to live. Well, then this is a way to think about it. Sometimes it's just easier to have none than to have a little bit. Great. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. This was excellent. Oh, so much fun. Thank you. Hope you guys enjoyed that. I love the fact that order, the minimalism, all that stuff that you might think is just your neurosis, unlocking your creativity. I guess uh, maybe that makes a little bit of sense. My desk is still a mess and the show is clean, hopefully, anyway. But I see the point here and, and I love the concept behind it. When people have habits that work for them, they are happier, healthier, and more productive. No mystery there, but I think a lot of us need help systemizing this, breaking those myths about habits, and of course, treats and healthy rewards making habit change possible, even if you've tried before just via brute force to make yourself do or not do something. Excellent. And of course, now being aware of those loopholes that you invoke for breaking good habits. I hope you guys enjoyed this one as much as I enjoyed recording it. Of course, this show is about you. So our feedback and guest suggestions should come straight to me. I'm Jordan at theartofcharm.com. It's a fanarchy. It means it's run by you. You guys are in charge. I work for you. And if you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank Gretchen on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well. Live program bootcamp details for The Art of Charm at theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp. And if you're listening but you're not subscribed in iTunes or Stitcher or wherever else podcasts are sold slash given away for free, please do that. Getting our shows delivered free to your phone or computer while you sleep is really the best way to make sure you don't miss anything. And it's really easy. And, of course, the price is right. Of course, we have our iPhone and Android apps available at The Art of Charm slash iPhone and slash Android. Special thanks to the Jasons for their help in production of The Art of Charm podcast Go ahead and tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, 
either in person or shared on the web. So have a great week and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and everything for the extraordinary man at theartofcharmpodcast.com. 